Welcome to the Ottoman History Podcast. I'm Chris Grayton. This episode is one of our more globally oriented episodes. We're looking at the history of commodities. Now, commodities have long served as a fascinating window onto historical connections and change. And in this episode, we'll be talking about the role of two particularly charismatic commodities in history, uh, coffee and marijuana, with an emphasis on Latin America. Our guests are scholars who are using these commodities to explore not just economic connection as or, you know, like leisure and consumption, but also aspects of, say, rural society, agriculture, uh, and political transformation. Both guests are currently my colleagues at the Harvard Academy for International and Area Studies, where we're recording. Uh, Casey Lourdes. Casey, welcome to the podcast. Thank you for having me, Chris. I'm excited to talk with you. Yes, we're excited to have you on. Casey Lurtz is a historian of modern Mexico interested in how rural people took part in and shaped globalization. She's starting a position at uh, Johns Hopkins University in the fall. Congratulations on that, Casey. Thank you. I'm also excited about that. Good luck with that. <laughs> Thanks. Um, and our second guest is uh, Lena Brito. Lena, welcome. Thank you, Chris. And hello to all the listeners. Lena is an assistant professor of history at Northwestern University, where she's been for a couple years, and we'll hear a little bit about how she teaches, uh, as well as her research. Uh, her research is about the history of modern Latin America. Um, she's working on a manuscript about the U.S.-Columbia drug connection and its history, um, entitled Trafficker's Paradise, subtitle yet pending, but the, <laughs> we've got the important part. It's a nice title. I think this is going to be a good conversation. Casey and Lena have you both here. Um, it's a little bit different format, uh, but as our listeners will discover, um, the two conversations we're going to have, much like the two commodities we're going to discuss, go really well together. Um, so what we'll do is start off with an introductory discussion of coffee and marijuana in history. Then we'll talk to Casey about her research on coffee in Mexico and in the global context. And then we'll move on to marijuana with Lena and conclude with a wrap-up discussion. So if it isn't clear, I'm kind of exploiting Casey and Lena here in a way because I don't really know a lot about the history of Latin America. So this is going to be a real learning experience for me, stepping outside the Ottoman Empire in the Middle East. Um, but actually, these two plants both have a lot of connection uh, to our normal region of discussion. You know, in the historiography of the Colombian Exchange, we usually talk about crops from the Americas that transformed uh, economies and diets in Asia and, and Africa and Europe. Um, but uh, here we're talking about two crops from the old world and indeed with a long presence in the Middle East uh, that have had a huge impact on uh, the modern history of Latin America. Casey, I'll start by coming to you. Uh, let's place coffee in a global perspective. You know, give us the short two-minute introduction to the history of coffee. Yes, uh, 500 plus years of history and, well, 1,000 plus years of history in, in two minutes. Great fun. Um, so, you already lost 10 seconds. <laughs> <laughs> so coffee kind of originally comes from Ethiopia, where there's a lovely folktale about a monk or a goat herd named Kaldi who sees his goats dancing around and very enthused and decides to try out what they're eating. Mm -hmm. And so um, picks up these coffee cherries at that point, which is kind of the fruit that surrounds the bean. And that is originally how coffee is consumed, is teas made from the leaves and from, from these berries. Um, but 
the berries don't transport very well, and quickly it enters kind of into Middle Eastern consumption, into the Arabian Peninsula. It starts being cultivated in Yemen, in Mocha, um, and from there is exported as a bean rather than the cherry itself. So the bean is inside the the cherry. The bean is inside the cherry. The bean is the seed of the cherry. Um, And the bean you can dry and transport. And in drying it and making it ready for export, it becomes impossible to then propagate it. So once it's dried out, you can't plant it. And so for many centuries, the Yemenis kind of maintain a a monopoly on the production of this until the French finally, the French and the Dutch finally steal it from them. And from there, it goes to Java and eventually to the Americas. Um, and kind of Haiti becomes the first, well, what becomes Haiti is the first real place of production in the Americas with French colonialism. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's only with the Haitian Revolution that it starts spreading elsewhere in Latin America. And during that period, you know, coffee is the beverage of the elites. And we think right. about coffee houses, which are very much a form coming out of the Ottoman Empire, right. coming exactly. out of kind of the world that you usually talk about on this mm-hmm. podcast, but that popular become popular around Europe. Um, and it's only with the entry of Brazil and this massive increase in production in the 19th century that coffee becomes something that you and I could afford right. now. Or and so, the fuel of the working classes exactly. and factories and this kind of Exactly. Stuff, yeah. So it's both an increased demand from factory workers that it goes hand in hand with this. One historian has uh, estimated it's like a 15-fold increase in the the number of coffee beans circulating, kind of the the quantity of coffee available across the 19th century. And so today, coffee is the second most traded commodity after oil. Wow! Like more than all of the other beverages combined, more than all of kind of animal products combined, coffee is the second most valuable thing up there. Right. So, and that's all we have Brazil to thank. We have Latin America and kind of this, this new market that emerges, this new production that emerges in the 19th century, but that all traces its origins back and kind of the culture of consumption back to the Middle East and that, that earlier right. mode of export. And it's a somewhat mundane commodity today, but we have to remember that when it first kind of yeah. hit the scene in the Ottoman Empire that there were a lot of debates over coffee, both as an intoxicant or stimulant, yes. if, it, if it should be banned. And I think there were even brief bans in some yeah. places, times and places in history on coffee, but not just because of its intoxicating effect, but also because of the culture right. surrounding it, the coffee house right. and, and how it lent itself to particular forms of socialization that might be subversive to right. uh, the state. Right, which happens initially again in kind of in the Middle East and in the Arabian Peninsula as part of that initial moment of consumption. And that also gets exported and popes intervene at various points to decide whether in the Catholic world, Mm. as had previously been discussed, is the Islamic world, is this something that it is permissible to drink? And happily, they came down on the side of, yes, it's okay. But, you know, women aren't allowed in coffee houses in certain countries for a long time. There's a lot of limitations on who gets to drink it. And then, as you mentioned, kind of the entry of fact factory production and all of that, it becomes a drink of the masses. And, you know, you substitute out beer or wine as your morning right. beverage for coffee, and it really does become this this beverage of, of capitalism and of, of industrialization. Yeah. And that's a cultural transformation that we're going to be hitting on throughout this uh, yeah. podcast, both with regard to coffee, but also with regard to our other subject, marijuana, which finds itself in a somewhat different position today. Uh, than coffee, but has as- shared aspects of its history. I mean, for those who know the history of the Middle East, from the early Islamic period onward, uh, marijuana was consumed in the form of hashish. You know, there were debates over the status of status of hashish as an intoxicant. Um, medieval Islamic authors tend to come down on the side that it is an intoxicant and is either discouraged or prohibited, but hashish was widely used um, by elites in the Middle East and also for other reasons from the curative to the, the mystical. Uh, Lena, before I 
turn to you and talk about or, or and ask you to set up the history of marijuana in a global perspective, I just want to share this one poem. It comes from a book called The Herb, published by the very you know, famous Orientalist Franz Rosenthal. Uh, and he's got a lot of great references from Arabic and Persian poetry to hashish. Here's my favorite one, or at least it's a short one that I can read quickly. This is a translation. A pretty girl high on hashish, when I blame her for what is going on, says, every gazelle feeds on green grass. <laughs> <laughs> so, I mean, I really like that. Obviously, the, the author of that poem was being tongue-in-cheek, sort of using wordplay isn't necessarily uh, promoting the consumption of marijuana. But, I mean, if you look at the medieval Islamic example, you see how um, framing the history of marijuana as merely one about a debate concerning illicit substances or drugs uh, doesn't really do justice to its long presence in the history of human society. So Lena, I'll leave the question quite open. What, what can you tell us about the history, the global history of marijuana? What are the important uh, trends and phenomena or, or maybe uh, studies that have been done on the subject? Well, I think if if I have, have to like uh, summarize this in just one sentence, I will say like the most uh, distinctive feature of the history, the global history of marijuana is its double personality. Mm. So marijuana has always been like swinging in like this pendulum-like movement between being a fiber and therefore promoted as such. Uh, because it's a very uh, salt-resistant, uh, very powerful fiber. Like hemp, and you mean. Like hemp, exactly. Yeah. Uh, and then being an intoxicant, you know, what we call now in our modern uh, jargon, uh, drug. Yeah. Uh, so this double personality has been a constant in the global history of marijuana, which we know is thanks to archaeological uh, evidence, it is one of the oldest uh, plants yeah. that humankind domesticated. Uh, we know that it originated in Central Asia, somewhere between the Caspian Sea, Siberia, and the Himalayas. And we know, thanks to archaeologists, that the oldest evidence we have of uh, domesticated um, cannabis, which is the scientific right. name, uh, comes from 4000 BC. So it's really one of the oldest plants that humankind ever used as medicine, mm -hmm. as food, oil, uh, as intoxicant, and as fiber. So what is interesting is that uh, when uh, Casey referred to like how this commodity, this agricultural commodity, coffee in that case, uh, has been a, a fundamental uh, element in the history of capitalism, we can say exactly the same thing about cannabis, both really? in its form of fiber and as intoxicant. As a fiber, uh, cannabis was known as the stitching of empire, of maritime empire, mm. because as fiber became absolutely central in shipbuilding ah. for nets, sails, um, for ropes, because it's salt resistant, uh, it's a very powerful fiber. And before we have all these synthetic fibers that we have nowadays, hemp was absolutely central in that. So all those maritime empires... Portugal, uh, Spain, England, the Dutch, France, etc., that became empires precisely thanks to maritime exploration and trips, uh, became that thanks in part to hemp, because it was the stitching of the empire at the uh. time. 
And then we have the other person side of the personality, which is what we could call the assessments of youth, which is uh, actually a trope that it was uh, resuscitated here in the United States in the 1930s during that uh, moment of like the reefer madness uh, yeah. propaganda against marijuana. Uh, but it's, it's, it's a very old uh, trope. Uh, that different, all these different empires had used against the intoxicant personality mm. of marijuana. Uh, and it's how, like, uh, when you get high, you become dangerous and uncontrollable. And the myth is that this idea comes from a um, sect in the Arab world, in ah, the right. Muslim world, uh, that they will known uh, in, in Arabic as hashishan the hashish smokers exactly yeah. um and that's the that's where the word assassin right and assassination comes from yeah because it was said that these uh contra killers basically got high on hashish in order to perform their crimes yeah. uh so that's the other side so marijuana has always moved between you know like this teaching of empires and the assassin of youth uh, right. And that two side is what is problematic in where this uh, agricultural commodity uh, exists in that very like um, thin red line between uh, being powerful and legal and being illegal and dangerous. And marijuana is widely cultivated throughout Latin America, but uh, this is one of those crops that came with the Colombian exchange, is that correct? That it wasn't existent yes, in the Americas? exactly. It was brought uh, to the Americas, uh, at least uh, to the Latin American uh, part uh, of our hemisphere um, with uh, the Spanish empire uh, and the Portuguese as well. So we know, for example, that uh, Mexico was the first uh, colony uh, at the time was called New Spain, the first colony to adopt cannabis mm -hmm. in its form of fiber as hemp uh, to produce all these materials for shipbuilding and for uh, ship uh, repairs and etc. One of my colleagues uh, has a very interesting book about this in which he uh, he talks about like the origins of cannabis in Mexico and how Mexico became one of the main producers of uh, what we call now marijuana in the whole uh, hemisphere precisely because it was brought to it uh, by the Spanish officers who wanted to promote uh, the production of fiber for the empire. Right, so it started as hemp and then took mm -hmm. on this other form. Exactly, and then people kind of like uh, experimented with it. And because um, the theory, uh, which is... Uh, had we don't really have a way to like, absolutely prove it as historians because we haven't found yet yeah. all those documents yeah. or evidences that we need in order to say this is for sure. But the hypothesis is that the people experimented with the, with, the, with the plant in its fiber way. And because Mexico is one of those parts of the continent where more uh, hallucinogenic plants exist and where there's a very strong... Uh, indigenous traditions of different languages and different indigenous cultures that experiment with plants as intoxicants and as doors to another uh, dimensions of human consciousness and human being. People experimented with it and soon discovered the intoxicant qualities of marijuana right. as well and began, began to experiment through cultivation methods mm -hmm. and in different environmental conditions with the plant and soon became also 
uh, a different, so they develop different strains and different varieties that were least, uh, less important as fiber and stronger as intoxicant because of their uh, components and uh, hallucinogenic qualities. And that speaks to a classic story in the history of commodities, which is that the reception of a particular commodity uh, is often tied to its resemblance, perhaps, to another type of commodity that is available in that location, or somehow the you know the the the, the method of consumption is transformed um, through like a, a cultural blending. Almost, I think of the the literature on chocolate, mm-hmm. for example, which was a very kind of spicy thing, like peppers. Uh, in the Americas. And when it goes to Europe with time, it becomes this kind of sweet thing because of the way milky, because the way it blends with other substances. So, I mean, there's a lot of great uh, topics here. I'm sure I I have a lot of questions for both of you and our listeners do as well. So we'll have a bibliography reading list on our website about all of what we've just been talking about, sort of in the global history of commodities, especially uh, coffee and marijuana. Um, But now we're going to take a quick music break and transition into a more focused conversation with each of our panelists. We'll be starting off uh, with Casey Lurtz discussing uh, coffee in Mexico and its global context. Stay tuned. Welcome to Ottoman History Podcast. Chris Grayton here. We're going to be talking about coffee, agriculture, and capital uh, in Mexico with a historian, our guest Casey Lurtz. So Casey, you're you're working on releasing this monograph uh, entitled From the Grounds Up. Yes. At least that's the main title. That's the main title. We'll see what comes after it. As with Lena, still deciding. You study the history of coffee in Mexico during the big Latin American export boom of the late 19th century, which is when coffee actually first became big in in many uh, regions of the Americas. And as you point out, Latin America's entrance into coffee production changed coffee from an elite specialty item to something everyone consumed on on a daily basis. On the flip side, um, the introduction of this product also must have had a huge impact on the societies where coffee was produced uh, in their economies. So just set us up. I'll start by asking, what's the one thing we need to know about coffee in Mexico and this story of transformation? Yeah. So um, as I think many of your listeners will be aware, like Mexico is not necessarily known for its coffee. And if you think of coffee in Latin America, you think of Brazil or Colombia or maybe Guatemala. Um, but Mexico has always been kind of amongst the top five exporters for most of the 20th century of coffee. It just never quite got that specialized niche that places Uh like Guatemala or Mexico did, or Guatemala or Colombia did. And similarly, coffee has never been Mexico's biggest export, but it's been one amongst a large number of exports Mm -hmm. that that Mexico was producing for world markets. And coffee kind of has this place as one of the sort of entry points into global commodity production for the country. And it is one of the first crops that Mexico, the Mexican government starts promoting as mm. a potential export for a number of regions in the country. And so it's it's precisely that it that coffee's rise was as a sort of a cheap mass-produced commodity in Mexico. It doesn't have that sort of cachet for like the best coffee, but it's it's yeah. been sort of it, it 
pioneered the, the production of more affordable uh, yes. coffee. Yeah, it's, I mean, along with Brazil. It always, yeah. Mexico knew that it was never going to compete with Brazil. But in coming late, it also was more attempting to compete with Guatemala, but didn't quite manage to have kind of that reputation building that get that gets done in other places. And it's more for me, it's a way to look at kind of it, it's not it's nothing special in some ways. And in being a more kind of typical product mm -hmm. um, without that sort of aura that gets attached to it in other countries or that kind of monoculture that we look at in yeah. other countries um, with regards to the export boom, kind of coffee becomes a window into a lot of things in Mexico. Yeah, so maybe you could tell us some of the factors that contributed this development, the rise of coffee in Mexico. You already yeah. mentioned government promotion, but so what was going on there? When yeah. This happened? Um, so as I said, you know, coffee is is on the leading edge of this export boom in Mexico. And of Latin America as a whole spends a lot of the 19th century in various civil and foreign wars. And kind of there's a lot of turmoil after independence. But by the 1860s, a lot of countries, including Mexico, are finally sort of settling into one system of governance, one kind of state and somewhat peaceful transfer of power between kind of between presidents, between regimes. Um, and there's this idea that's been around since the end of the colonial era that while kind of Latin America for the Spanish Empire had provided all these minerals, there's all this other wealth, natural wealth that could be tapped yeah. into. Um, and that has to do with you know the the, the riches of the countryside that Mex Latin America hasn't been participating as an an agricultural producer for world markets, in part because you know shipping is expensive. There aren't there aren't consumers out there to buy these things. But this kind of pacification that's going on in politics coincides with the rise of new methods of shipping, with the industrial you kind know, of the second industrial revolution, with consumer revolutions going on in Europe and in uh, in the United States, and there's more demand. And so Mexico sees this, and as it's kind of figuring out what to do, as kind of those in governance, those in politics are figuring out what to do, and also planters in the countryside are seeing the possibilities, there is this idea that export commodities, rather than pursuing industrialization or going back to mining, you pursue, you pursue export agriculture as the way for Mexico to kind of become prosperous. And coffee is one amongst a number of crops that kind of get promoted in this moment, both by people in the countryside, as well as by people in power in politics in Mexico City as kind of this entry point and for Mexico to become to take advantage of these new demands. Right. And this this we, this must have put a huge stamp on the history of Mexico and its development, the development of sort of its modern capitalist economy, mm -hmm. this its distinct quality of being heavily based on agriculture. Mm -hmm. Which was not, which was normally seen as pre-industrial. Yeah. Mexico kind of being one of the countries to take the lead as being almost an industrial agriculture. There is, the yeah, there's an idea of that, and it's it's not just Mexico. It's a lot of yeah. you know industrialization has happened in other you know sure. in Western Europe, and it's seen as you you have to develop kind of the capital base in order to be able yeah. to move into industry. And so it's not that the government's never promoting industry, but Mexico it is a you know in the the parlance of the time at an earlier kind of stage of advancement. Um, it needs to get through this initial kind of agricult agricultural modernization, um, through the liberalization of land policy, through the right. kind of introduction and solidification of private property in the countryside before it can advance to the next quote unquote stage of, of kind of economic activity right and, and this, so yeah these are familiar discourses yeah. too it's very very familiar but i mean there's aspects of the story that are a little bit unique and i yes. want to highlight one of those because you know in the history of agriculture capitalism and monoculture 
which is the, the cultivation of a single crop in a large area, such as a plantation, they often go hand in hand. Yeah. Uh, and as I understand from your story about Mexico, and this does have something to do with coffee, yeah. it's a little bit different situation. Maybe you can tell us more about yeah. that. Yeah, and that's, um, I, I definitely can't. So, so Mexico, uh, as I said earlier, coffee's never the top export because Mexico's exporting a lot of different things. Mexico's exporting by, 1900, by 1910 about 100 different agricultural products. And some of these things are plantation crops. And when we talk about Mexico in this era, we think towards the Mexican Revolution. Mm-hmm. We think about plantations and pushing indigenous people off their land. And that's definitely going on in parts of the country. But in other parts of the country, as in the places that I look at that are engaged with coffee, people are holding on to their land because coffee, you don't need a lot of land to grow it. It can be a plantation crop, but it can also be something that you grow alongside your corn and beans. It can be something that you grow kind of as a supplement, as a little bit of cash crop to sell to market, but still feed yourself and your family from what you're growing on your land as well. Mm -hmm. And so coffee, along with a number of the other things that Mexico is exporting in this moment, things like beans, actually, or um, vanilla and other spices, are often supplements to rather than replacements for kind of traditional agriculture. Mm -hmm. And so you get plantations in some places and you get that more traditional story of monocultures, but then you monocropping, but then you also get this this diversification and broadening of the kind of different agricultural goods that are being produced for market that makes Mexico distinct from a lot of other places or actually from a lot of the history histories that we've told about this moment of kind of economic expansion in Latin America based on export goods. Right. I mean, we need to provincialize this discussion a little bit in terms Mm -hmm. of, especially when thinking about the socioeconomic transformations brought Mm -hmm. by the rise of coffee, because, you know, as you mentioned in other parts of Mexico, you you have these plantations. And of course, then we have the work of Myrna Santiago Mm -hmm. on the ecology of oil, Mm -hmm. a very distinct political economy that arises around um, the production of uh, oil in the Huasteca region. So uh, what are the regions where uh, coffee is predominating in Mexico? And like, how does that impact these regions? Yeah. So what's interesting is that the Huasteca is another, where where oil is one side of the story, coffee is another side Ah, of the story. Um, So Veracruz, Oaxaca, kind of the southern part of Mexico, down into Central America. And you get Mm -hmm. somewhat similar stories in various parts of Central America for a long time, where you have kind of plantations side by side with small small holders, with villagers Mm -hmm. growing coffee. And the long-term result, in Mexico at least, is a lot of these places don't participate in the political violence that happens at kind of the end of what we think of as the export boom in this uh. this era. So the revolution starts in the 19 teens and a lot of these regions you know you would talk about the revolution which is kind of in in the the hearts of it based on conflicts over land a lot of the time and loss of land. Here, kind of these places get dragged into that violence because they haven't lost their land um, or they enter into that that kind of political battle over governance because uh, for a variety of other reasons rather than these reasons that have to do with um, loss of property, loss of kind of political rights that come with that property also. And so there's there's also then a, a kind of a deeper history to you know, if you're thinking about coffee today in Central America or coffee today in Mexico, even you're probably buying your coffee from a cooperative. You're buying your coffee from some group of uh, smallholders. Yeah. And this what the work that I'm doing is trying to present a deeper history to those cooperatives, right. which we tend to think of as something new. 
Right, the whole fair trade thing. The whole it fair seems trade to be thing. Built yeah. on like the guilt of like American yes. consumers <laughs> and whatnot, but actually, there's a longer. There's history a longer there. history there, and it's hard to tie the two explicitly together. There's plenty of politics that happen in mid 20th century that that kind of disrupt that a little bit. But at least the landholding that's at the basis of those cooperatives getting to exist now goes back to the early days of coffee in many of these regions. That these right. aren't people who lost their land and then regained it through the beneficence of Americans buying from cooperative coffee growers. Uh. <laughs> um, but that this is a new way for those coffee growers who've always been coffee growers on their small plots of land to enter with a little bit more kind of agency and control over what kind of they're getting back from American consumers um, at, at this point in time. And this, these are classic themes in the agrarian yeah. history of, of Mexico and sort of thinking about coffee as a particular plant within mm -hmm. this uh, context as another dimension. I'm sure our listeners who are interested in the history of Mexico will be very uh, excited to check out the book and read more about what you're talking about. But maybe to conclude, I want to mm -hmm. maybe you can open it up a little, yeah. open up the global discussion a little bit for us. Talk about regions beyond Mexico yeah, um, and, and help us think about these shifts to export agriculture and what they mean for yeah. you know, global and local history yeah. sort of in tandem. So um, a lot of commodity histories kind of come out of our understanding of Latin America as part of this export boom, kind of this, this tradition of looking at this region after independence, entering into global markets, kind of not industrializing, but kind of becoming part of of the global economy through raw materials. But of course, it's not just Latin America that's feeding into the factories in England or you know the northern United States. It's the whole south of the United States that pro that's producing cotton. There's you know the, the Belgian Congo that's producing rubber. There's India that's participating in this commodity production in the same moment in a lot of different ways. And scholars are starting to find various places or look for um, or just recognize for the these places where smallholders are continuing to hold on to their land, where plantations are not the only story. Mm. Um, the Belgian Congo story is one where it's a horrible story of yeah. colonialism and nobody's trying to make that look any better um, because you can't really. But there are other places, kind of cacao, going back to one of the things that yeah. you brought up earlier, if cacao in West Africa there's a lot of ways in which it serves as kind of a transition out of the slave trade, um, a transition out of slave-based economies in which people, again, smallholders or people become smallholders around cacao, which like coffee doesn't have the economies of scale that require plantation labor, mm -hmm. um, where there's there's different types of landholding patterns, there's different types of political participation that grow out of commodity production than the sort of monoculture or monocrop plantation agriculture that we've yeah. long pointed to. Um, and so the book, while it's about Mexico and coffee in particular, is also trying to push us to recognize the variety of ways in which um, different communities entered into global the global economy right. kind of took part in the the economic transformations that came in the late 19th, early 20th century that took part in and, and shaped the spaces in which kind of our stereotypical massive foreign investors in plantation kind of exploitative plantations were in fact able to kind of take part kind of where right. could where geographically where kind of topologically could they insert themselves into some of these places right. if you know you have smallholders, if you have villagers who are saying, no, I'm going to grow some of that too. And I'm going to use that money that I'm getting from it to, yeah. in fact, you know, pay my taxes, hold on to my land, not go work for you. Um, and so that's, that's the story that I'm trying to kind of point towards from the Mexican case, but gesture to a lot of other parts of the world too. 
and in part it's you know it's the work of decades of historians oh, yes. you know there's a critical mass of these local stories of agrarian change through the introduction of different commodities yeah. that are starting to allow us to see the you know differentiated geography of capitalism on the yeah. global scale um, we've got a bibliography on our website for our listeners who want to read more about these topics casey yep. thank you for talking to us about thank your research thank you so much coffee. chris So now we'll turn to Lena. Ready, Lena? Yes. <laughs> Lena's a historian of modern Latin America. She's working on a book manuscript uh, entitled Trafficker's Paradise that is exploring the connections between U.S. and Colombia, uh, drug connections, uh, and, specific, and especially focusing on the topic of marijuana. We're going to talk a little bit about Lena's research on the history of marijuana in Colombia during the Cold War. But I also want to step back and talk conceptually about drug history and studying marijuana in history beyond its status as a drug. Um, because, Lena, you've been teaching at Northwestern for the past few years, and you've had the opportunity to actually teach uh, classes on, on the history of drugs. Tell us about your approach, how you bring this topic to the classroom, uh, and how you specifically you know, define and reconceptualize drugs and their place in history. Uh, actually, this question helps me to like connect with the uh, Casey and her work and what she was saying about commodity history and commodity studies, because that's precisely the approach that I try to bring to the classroom, like uh, step away from all the moralist uh, right. debates and discussions that we had in this country about drugs in general, marijuana in particular, and look at the history of this uh, plant and medicine and intoxicant and food and whatever as a commodity, as part of like the history of commodities. Um, so in that sense, I make emphasis on two aspects. The first one is understanding the history, not only marijuana, but drugs more generally, illegal drugs, uh, as a, as a global history. Yeah. So in my class it's mostly about, uh, U.S. Latin American relations, but at many points during the, the quarter, uh, we have to talk about the, the world more generally right. and make some connections with Asia or uh, with Africa, with Europe, etc. But still, our emphasis is always the Americas. Uh, but it's a global history, so that will be like the first main point to have in mind. And the other point is that it's a political history, right. which we tend to forget with all the moralism and all the scientific and pseudo-scientific discussion that is around these issues. Uh, but it's mostly a political history. And what do I mean by that? I mean criminalizing and defining what what of these commodities are legal and which ones are illegal is always a political process that had to do with power struggles in very specific conjunctures. And that's what we try to do in the classroom to show students what are those different conjunctures that helped or contributed to criminalize, illegalize these drugs and how we are always moving uh, from one side of the spectrum to the other one, considering some of these drugs as panaceas, medicines that can yeah. help 
to address a wide range of uh, medical conditions and problems to looking at them as dangerous, as poisoned. Uh, so that's why history is so important because it helps us to trace those transitions and those changes. That hesitation and ambivalence that we as society had between adoring uh, and idolizing yeah. uh, these drugs, even from a scientific point of view, to hating them and fearing them and criminalizing and prohibiting them. So that's why history is so important. So between trying to understand this as a global history, as the history, as part of the a fundamental and substantive uh, element uh, in the history of capitalism, and a political history, a history that has to do with power struggles and right. specific conjunctures. Right. And I guess you answered one of my questions in a way that I wanted to ask you. You know, we know from commodity history that coffee, wheat, oil, all these different commodities, cotton, you can study them in social history perspective. You can study the cultural history of these commodities. And, and they indeed do have their own political histories. But I guess when we talk about illicit commodities, whether medicinal or intoxicant drugs, uh, controlled commodities, there is a particular um, political labor that's done by the very category of the illicit substance that I guess is a major part of your research. Exactly. And not only my research, but also my teaching, because that's one of the challenges uh, in like teaching uh, or, or like being there for students to learn this history, yeah. facilitating their learning about this history is trying to like, like, never losing focus of the social and cultural history there, but emphasizing the political history because that will be the only way to step away from moralism and trying to understand how that divide between licit and illicit, legal and illegal, is a construction. It's something that, that we all construct together. And it's like a consensus that we create, but it's always a consensus that's being challenged yeah. by different sectors that don't agree with this, either in in this in the discourse and the theory or in the practice itself, right? And step away from categories such as good or bad. Right. Uh, that's not categories. exactly. That's not something that uh, that that we find useful uh, in the classroom uh, because they don't let us like go beyond uh, the moralistic. Uh, category, right. try to understand the historical process of how that happened. Right. So it's history methodology par excellence, basically, this, this approach to drugs. And I want to wade into your own uh, more focused research uh, on the relationship between Colombia, Latin America, and Cold War um, through the lens of marijuana, uh, starting with the present and popular, uh, those popular perceptions that you're, um, I guess, seeking to deconstruct. Um, you know, Drug wars are a big thing in our, in our media and television in the United States. Uh, and in a recent article in the NACLA report on the Americas, you argued that shows like uh, the Netflix series Narcos, I haven't actually seen it, but I've heard a lot about it, uh, that they distort history in a way. Uh, what do you mean by that? How so? Like, is it a matter of getting the facts wrong, being like factually inaccurate? Or is there something deeper on the level of representation that you wanted to highlight in making that critique? Well, it's both things. Uh, it's a distortion of a specific facts 
and it's also that 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 we know our facts because uh, we have all the evidences uh, that show how how it happened that this event took place this date yeah. during that year and not that other day during a different year and why that date matters. Uh, but it's also more broadly about representation. So just one one thing before I go into this discussion is that uh, okay, a lot of people will say, well, uh, it's not fair to judge a TV series yeah. for not being uh, historically accurate. Right. Uh, and I will agree with that yeah. more generally. Yes, absolutely. It's not fair. But in this particular case, what it was because one of the marketing strategies that they used was to claim that this was a class in history, in the history right. of the drug trade. So if that's the claim that they are making for marketing purposes, well, they are themselves uh, exposing themselves to be judged under those terms, and under those terms, they're failing uh, because they are what they what they did in this show in particular. And then I'm going to talk more broadly about representation of of the narco narco trafficking and the mm -hmm. narco culture. Um, this show in particular, Narcos by Netflix, is they just play with the with characters and dates and facts and move them around randomly in a way to create motivations for characters to produce tension in 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 the drama in the narrative which is is fine is what you do when you're making fiction but then said so it's just fiction don't promote right. it as if it were a class of drug history which was not right. and then on the other hand at the level of representation one of the most interesting things about the history of the drug trade in latin america is that some of the uh, the first agents of representation for say it for for using uh, uh the term this concept of agency uh were narcotraffickers themselves they were the first to represent their own illegal activity and their own and the status that they achieved through that illegal activity as something that it was a reason to celebrate something that other people should emulate and copy mm -hmm. because it was an achievement and an accomplishment. Yeah. So in places like Mexico, for example, we have an important ge musical genre, which is called the narco corridos, in which uh, musicians that are friends and close uh, relatives or whatever or neighbors uh, of like some of these traffickers work with these traffickers many times under contract other times and spontaneously to produce songs and lyrics uh, celebrating their spoils and their right. persona like early in modern Columbia, bandits basically exactly. yeah. in colombia we have a similar story all uh, with vallenato uh, which is a, a a musical genre from the caribbean coast that basically the same thing with marijuana traffickers and much later when Vallenato nationalized and was just not anymore just the folkloric music of the Caribbean coast, but like a fundamental element of Colombian culture more generally in other regions of the country, uh, other uh, cocaine traffickers and even guerrilla commanders and paramilitary commanders use the genre to celebrate their illegal uh, activities and their uh, crimes in a way, or not only crimes, their okay. lifestyles more generally. Uh, so one of the first to represent this illegal activity as something that uh, the rest of society should know about and even celebrate were 
uh, the people involved in the illegal activity themselves. And then the mass media right. kind of like tap into that. And they began to produce soap operas, telenovelas yeah. uh, in Latin America, about all these. Many of them are very celebratory. Other are very critical. So right. we have everything depending on, on, on many different factors, uh, the network, the writers, uh, the intended audience, etc. cetera. Uh, but it's, it's important, and I think it is important that we do have representations about that because it's definitely one of the main economic activities and social uh, spaces of modern Latin America. So, right. of course, the media whatever media, the mass media, even social media, well, it's something that we should be talking about and that we should be trying to make sense and understand and and celebrate if that's the case, if that's what people feel about this. But then for us as scholars is to wonder, okay, what is this about? What right. this can tell us about the kind of society that we are right now and the values that underline our society. And so in the case of these like American TV series in, in not being more mindful of that, those forms of representation and, and understanding of the narco history and maybe telling the story from a, uh, an American perspective, it has the quality of either distorting uh, the, the historical and social context of, of drug history, essentially, and, and maybe even um, um, eschewing the, the, the political context that, mm -hmm. that, that the story is situated in. Yeah, and in the, in the case of Narcos, uh, the Netflix show is that they were work, working closely with the DEA, with the two agents that are like the protagonist of the show. Uh, the screen uh, screenwriters and yeah. the producers, the filmmakers, the directors, all of them, they work with them. They even train with them in the DEA Academy. So it's basically the DEA version of events, the one that is, that the ones that is is represented, and that will be okay because that's ha happened in many cases. If you remember the classic TV TV series Miami Vice was a TV series from the point of view of the narcs, meaning the, the yeah. anti-narcotics agents. And that was fun. That was interesting. Uh, you can criticize whatever you want to criticize about the show, but that's legit. Mm -hmm. uh, and what Narcos did is legit as well in its own way. But the problem is that they claim that they are educating audiences about the history of the drug trade when they are not. Absolutely not, uh, because if you're gonna make that claim, then you will have to like really dig deeper right. into first the chain of events, how things happen, and try to reconstruct that and truly represent the motives and intentions of those characters and those situations, and be empathetic and, and uh, have empathy with the people that went through that. And you see in Narcos a lot of exploitation of real news footage of car bombings and like people, like cadavers and like dead bodies and mm -hmm. et cetera, bloody images to, you know, like infuse the show with the tension and drama that is necessary, but without much regard for like the victims and the people who are still surviving that trauma. Right, and and without much regard for a lot of the historiographical considerations that you, you as you said, you try to bring into your classroom in, the, in drug history. I want to sort of move to the mm -hmm. end of our conversation and ask you about, you know, your broader research on on the history of 
of marijuana in, in Latin America and the ties to the U.S. And, and especially about how you kind of situate it in in the field of Cold War history, mm-hmm. you know, the history the, which is now a field of global history that you know begins mm-hmm. after the end of the Second World War and continues throughout the Cold War and shows the Cold War echoing into all these different uh, regions of the world in various ways. Mm-hmm. Tell us about this work. Well, my research is trying to understand like a, like a puzzle that we have in modern Latin American history, and this is the puzzle: like how Colombia, a country that never really played an important role in this global history of the drug trade, right? Different to Mexico, for example, who has been a supplier of marijuana and opiates mm-hmm. uh, to the United States since like the late 19th century and throughout the whole 20th century, or Peru, for example, yeah. who was the main supplier of cocaine when cocaine was a legal uh, medical commodity, a uh, legal me- medicine, mm-hmm. since the late 19th century. Um, so how Colombia, a country that never played a part in this, suddenly in the 1970s became a drug producer and trafficker powerhouse. So that's that's been a huge puzzle uh, in the history of modern Latin America. And like the consensus that we have, what we believe is the, is the answer, is that, oh, it's because Colombia, after the mid-century civil war, just kind of got like a, became many regions of Colombia, peripheral lowland regions in Colombia, became nobody's land. Uh, mm. The state was not present, was absent, and it's the absence right. of the state in these peripheral regions what allow for the formation of these illegal networks for the uh, for drug trade. Um, and what I found in the particular case of marijuana. Uh, is that that's not necessarily the case. It's the opposite. It's the type of presence that the nationalist state did in these regions, the type of agrarian modernization and development Ah. that they brought to these regions, what created the contradictions and the connections necessary, the social and, and, um, and political and cultural infrastructure for these illegal activities to emerge. So why marijuana instead of cocaine, which is the main commodity that Colombia has exported to the world, not only to the United States? Well, it's because marijuana produced a regional economic boom in the country way before cocaine did. So the first cocaine booms we have then in like early, mid-1980s, especially in the late 1980s. Uh, But the first uh, marijuana boom, first and only marijuana boom, bonanza that we had was in the 70s, throughout the 1970s. So the question is, okay, why marijuana, uh, not cocaine? And what happened? Why marijuana collapsed and declined, did not sustain yeah. um, so that's basically what my book is trying to to uh, answer um, so to about your question about why locate this as part war, of the yeah. Cold War history is well because we have another puzzle here which I will think of, uh, of it as a paradox so we know that in the in 1969 Richard Nixon declared the detente right like the relaxation of tensions with Russia yeah. right and then went on to uh, break all these negotiations about uh, nuclear weapons etc so we go through the whole 1970s under the detente Right, the Cold mm-hmm. War is like uh, is lowering its volume, to mm-hmm. say it in one way. Yeah. At the same time, he declares the war on drugs. Right, uh, so 
what I'm trying to understand and what the history of marijuana in Colombia to supply the United States allows me to understand is how these two components of U.S. foreign policy right. combined. Right, war and the war on drugs. Exactly, how the Cold War, while we like turn the volume down on the Cold War, we turn the volume up on the war on drugs wow. and how they both combine. And Colombia is a privileged setting to try to understand that because we see in every anti-narcotics effort in Colombia, which started with the war against marijuana in the 1970s, how these counterinsurgent techniques that are part of the history of the Cold War, right. Vietnam, um, these, exactly, yep. uh, in U.S. foreign policy in the Third World, you know, mm -hmm. like they exporter those techniques to the Third World to yeah. to deal with rebelliousness, with guerrilla movements, etc. Yeah. How they began to intertwine with anti-narcotics strategies and tactics and goals. Yeah. So that's why I locate this history in the history of the late Cold War period, trying to understand how anti-narcotics and how the war on drugs is one more element of U.S. foreign policy in that context of creating a superpower for yeah. itself uh, that either uses counterinsurgent techniques or anti-narcotics techniques, depending on the setting, depending on the political goals, depending on the necessities, electoral necessities as well, yeah. at home and abroad. Right. And that's a very fascinating story that both, you know, in terms of thinking about politics and drugs and politics and commodities, um, you know, it shows that political economy uh, of Colombia is, is relevant for understanding the rise of marijuana in the places where it did. Um, as you alluded to earlier, but also that global politics uh, shapes uh, both production, consumption, and and trade. Uh, of and repression as well, because yes. I think we should add to that um, to the drug uh, network production uh, processing in the case of cocaine yeah. that requires processing, not in the case of marijuana. Mm -hmm. uh, commercialization and trade, including export trade, then consumption, but mm -hmm. also repression. Mm -hmm. uh, which is part of the of the, what I call the process of making drugs. Yeah. So making drugs is not only about producing drugs or taking and consuming them, but also like illegalizing right, them and right. repressing them because that's how we made them illegal and Rendering criminal. Rendering them drugs. Exactly. You know, the making of the drug is a construct. Exactly. It's very fascinating. Well, we have a bibliography on our website where people can read more about this. Uh, Lena, thanks for talking to us about your research. It was very interesting. Thanks for having me and thanks to the listeners. Welcome back to Ottoman History Podcast. Chris Grayton here with Casey Lurtz and Lena Brito, two scholars at the Harvard Academy for International and Area Studies. Um, we've been talking about their research on coffee and marijuana, respectively, in the history of, Mer of Latin America. Casey and Lena, thanks for sitting with me and bearing with me through this discussion. <laughs> it's <laughs> been fun. You. No, yeah, I've liked yeah. listening to what Lena had to say also. Really. And as you said at the beginning, coffee and marijuana go very they well go together. Very <laughs> well together, as we're learning and we'll discuss further. To conclude this discussion, you know, I'd like to raise a couple conceptual questions about the history of agriculture 
agricultural commodities more more broadly these are both agricultural commodities mm -hmm. right and it's something that's fascinating for everyone uh, when i think of popular commodity history books i think of a big story in which like an inanimate but very charismatic object like chocolate or salt or cotton wine tea and coffee and marijuana mm -hmm. uh, serve as protagonists uh, and through networks of movement and trade, we follow the commodity and get a broad and messy picture of a very interconnected world. And that's part of the story here, but it seems like both of you are doing something a little different. Um, so I'll start, I guess I'll start with Casey. How do you approach the question of commodities or what's your version of commodity history that goes beyond that stereotype version for the trade paperback that yeah, I just kind of no I mean I think my favorite is my favorite is the cod one or you know anyways um I think I started this history as a commodity history and had intentions of kind of follow doing the traditional thing and following yeah. it out of this part of Mexico and back to its various markets and well I know that story and kind of where it ends up. I've ended up much more interested in the on the ground production side of the question that that story, which is always a part of commodity history, that reshaping of local economies around new types of production was, in fact, complex enough to require a lot more explication, explanation, exploration than the kind of the larger kind of trajectory of a commodity history would allow. And that, in fact, kind of in doing that work, coffee becomes a nice stand-in, as I mentioned earlier, for a number of different commodities, potentially. That there is work that can be done around this one crop that becomes less about this particular crop than about this moment in historical, kind of the interconnections that commodity histories emerged from as an, as, as a, a, an attempt to understand. And so I don't, I mean, I think it's similar in that marijuana is one amongst many things. Yeah, but it's funny that you said that happened to you, that you wanted to like, you started like a commodity historian and yeah. you ended up like more concerned and more like entertained yeah. with, the, <laughs> with the Mexican side of the mm -hmm. thing. So that kind of happened to me. I mean, I'm Colombian, so that kind of makes sense that uh, my curiosity yeah. stands more on this on the Colombian side of the equation uh, but also uh, um, happened to me as I progress in the research that okay I'm just gonna like study the whole commodity chain and ended up like like more concerned trying to understand like the Colombian side right and I do of course pay attention to the United States in many ways especially uh, what happened uh, in Washington uh, I, and by Washington, I mean what the White House and, and Congress mm -hmm. mainly. Um, and some of these agencies as well, uh, but especially the White House and, and Congress. And I, I, I care very much about what happened in South Florida, which was the main point of entry of marijuana and as well cocaine, uh, but in my case, uh, marijuana. So, but uh, I ended up spending a lot of time trying to understand how production and yeah. commercialization happened in Colombia, because that allowed me to move under very different uh, registers from like all the cultural and social aspects of it yeah. to the very uh, economic uh, and political and, and political economy uh, in a way. So it's funny that that happened yeah. to you because in a way it's like if the commodity itself will tell you like how to understand it. Yes, I think that's that's very much the case. And it's also that kind of in doing the research, and I don't know if you had a similar experience, but 
I realized that we know a lot about the other end of this commodity chain. We, there's been plenty of work done on, on consumption, kind of, on consumption. Yes. Um, but that the the vagaries and varieties of production that are going on, and if there's been one one story told there a number of times, but that the story I was finding was much more diverse and had a lot more room for doing something new. Um, and that, that then fed into our understanding of the whole chain, but that this was the part that felt a little underdeveloped. And it kind of shows how the very features of capitalism mm -hmm. actually shape the um, default narrative about these commodities yeah. that they are abstracted from their 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 social and cultural context of production and very yeah. much understood within their economic value and relevance to consumers, etc. So I want to ask about how you both see your work as related to the history of capitalism. And Lena, I'll start with you because you know, by virtue of marijuana being prohibited in many countries, it would actually seem to reside outside the conventional boundaries of mm -hmm. capitalism. I mean, you can invest in in, in in growing and selling marijuana. Well, now um, you can. <laughs> yeah, now you can, right. And increasingly, we'll talk about that later. Yeah. But there definitely, it's definitely outside of the conventionally understood uh, mm -hmm. institutions and structures of trade and finance. Yeah. So how did, did you find that there is a place for your case in with regard to Colombia or more broadly for the consideration of marijuana really within this history of capitalism? Oh, yeah, no, absolutely. Um, because, uh, as I said, my approach is trying to understand this as a commodity. And in that sense, uh, all that uh, a huge chunk of my work is political economy is right. trying to understand how production and markets are created in the political processes. Um, so, so yes, absolutely. And the other thing is more methodological is, okay, how do you do research on a commodity that is illegal and how you research on traffickers and traders or producers that are purposely trying right. to hide and disguise their right. activities and not leave a trace. So that posed up a methodological um, challenge right. to the historian or, or to the anthropologist or the sociolo uh, sociologist or, or whoever wants to understand it. But to the historian, it's even more challenging because we are so uh, anchored independent on the written source yeah. and the documents. Uh, so that was a, a huge challenge. So I, 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 I addressed that challenge by like um, trying to work and play with the questions that I was asking. Uh, and at the same time with the mythologies itself. So for me, oral history was absolutely central and important. Mm -hmm. uh, like do field work. Uh, go to the region, although the region is not a marijuana belt anymore. It's still the people who participated in 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 the economy in the 70s and early 80s. Uh, many of them are still alive and are willing to talk because they don't have anything to lose because they don't have any money, they don't have any wealth, they don't have any status or prestige that mm -hmm. comes from that. So they didn't have anything to lose, and they were. I found they were eager and excited yeah. about sharing their experience experience with somebody that was really interested in, in understanding yeah, right. it. So that was one way to like circumvent the obstacles sure. of, of, of researching historically an illegal activity right. yeah. and then combining a lot of different sources of different kinds. So m my, my work is really like a patchwork, yeah. like um, 
uh, yeah, um, of like little pieces here and there and trying right. to, to make a sense of like the big picture through these little scattered pieces. Precisely, yeah. And precisely because the official documentation that we would normally use is, is meant to obscure uh, this history of drugs, especially if we think of financial institutions and like money laundering, like mm -hmm. the the... You have to get the weed off of the money before it can enter the record, right? So studying that... Yeah, but that's that's only one side of the written record because the other side of the written record is the one that is exaggerating everything yeah. right? because they need to exaggerate it in order to create a menace, in order to create a threat mm -hmm. that justifies the mobilization of state power and state resources in, in repressing and criminalizing and prohibiting that. Yeah. So you have that other side too that they are exaggerating. So you really know how much hectares were like planted with marijuana yeah. because sources contradict each other depending on the political purposes and goals. Yeah, I have kind of a, f a flip side of that story and somewhat that, that it's really interesting again to look at the aims of the state in grappling with different kinds of crops. Um, and mine is, is similarly hard to find and hard to point to, pin down at certain points because there is no state in this place uh -huh. at the beginning of the story that I'm telling and that these institutions that kind of we come to associate with capitalism, kind of something as simple as a land title, which you're not gonna find necessarily the hectareage of a marijuana mm -hmm. you know, grow, you can't find it for the coffee that I'm dealing with because there's just nowhere to register the fact that you have you own this piece of property. And so I'm looking though at people who want to build that up instead of who want to evade that and are mm -hmm. purposefully kind of working around that. In your case, I'm looking at people who are saying, no, actually, if I'm going to invest my money in this, yeah. I want to have that title. I want to pay some taxes on this so that I can then get a mortgage on it so that I can participate in these larger right. circuits of, of kind of financialization and of credit and of capital of capital and of capitalism that right. we think of in this moment. The larger like local roots of, right. uh, of capitalists. Right. That's also often obscured, especially in the history of Latin America. Yeah, exactly. That kind of capitalism is seen as this thing that comes in from outside, that comes in with the demand from Europe for particular kinds of goods or from the U.S. or with, you know, particular cap rubber barons and banana kings who show up mm -hmm. with capitalism is this thing that they drop on the ground and a whole system in place. And right. here instead, I've got people, you know, villagers and laborers and, you know, small asindalos who want to be a part of that, who see yeah. the advantage in, in kind of structuring those forms and taking part in those forms. And so build them, build them up and eventually kind of find the state somewhere in the middle right. kind of encounter the state, not on any outsiders kind of timeline, not on any sort of implementation yeah. of capitalist structures from, from outside, but as they finally get to the point where they need them right. and where they have built up enough infrastructure to kind of make use of them in the way that some sort of political power or larger economic structure has also standardized. And it sounds very familiar to me uh, yeah, as someone imagine, who studies the, yeah. the Middle East and the Ottoman Empire. I mean, even in my own research, I encounter a, a similar need for revision yeah. of this history of capitalism in the region, precisely along the lines that that you're describing. Uh, and so I want to ask, you know, I'm hearing a lot of resonances between the two of you and your different projects, Lena and Casey. And uh, you both work on Latin America, but mm -hmm. we do have to be a little careful not to essentialize <laughs> the Americas yeah. or Latin America in particular as having any sort of um, generalizable like features that are essential or unique to it. But I do want to ask if you think in, the, in, the, in commodity history across different Latin American geographies, 
uh, and the commodities that are found within them. Um, the stories might at all be distinct from other regions. Can we think about Latin America in this way? Or is, that, is it actually that there's a lot of diverse stories taking place even within this one region that sort of have these more global resonances? Yeah. I think there is a lot of diversity there and it's it, we, we're historians we, we like particular stories <laughs> right we we have a trouble generalizing but i think that one of the things that is important to remember is that all of this is done after well this kind of export boom both in the the time period that i'm looking at and and later mm. kind of turn towards more illicit substances is done not under colonialism is not done as a part of empire but mm -hmm. is done after the fact kind of there there are commodities that are part of the spanish empire that are part of the portuguese empire but that unlike kind of the the incorporation of africa or the subcontinent into kind of circuits of of trade in mm -hmm. kind of from europe um this is done from with within latin america looking outward i don't know if that resonates with you no but i absolutely I, think... I absolutely agree with you uh it's it's very important to have in mind that this is a post-independence post-colonial history yeah. in a way and the only thing that i will add to that uh just to like uh, piggyback on your idea is that it's is precisely because it's a post-independence post-colonial history is also about the intimate relationship between North and South mm -hmm. in the Americas yeah. and how United States constitute as itself in relation to Latin America and vice versa through this circulation of these commodities and the yeah. political process of legalizing or illegalizing some of them mm -hmm. and creating markets for both of them, markets that are different in violence, in investment, in many things, depending on their legal or illegal status. Yeah. But it's definitely uh, a history of the relationship between North and South in the Americas yeah. and the differences between North and South in this yeah. in this part of the of the planet. I would just, there's a, a woman named Karen Kaplan at Rutgers who is in the process of writing a book that I hope comes out sometime soon about kind of the moment of independence in Latin America and how Latin America was seen as a possible competitor with the United States for kind of economic power on a global stage. For, I mean, the U.S. was very young at, in yeah. 1810 also. Um, and that there and is... very agrarian. And very and, yeah. agrarian. Um, and so kind of the, the, the approach to Latin America that comes in the kind of in the wake of those independences is initially as, well, well, is this somebody that we have to worry about? Are these countries that are going to push us out as a provisioner and consumer of European goods, or are these countries that we can turn into suppliers for ourselves? Right. And if that 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 history is not just one of licit and illicit in the in the twentieth century, but also of pushing back into the nineteenth century and these early kind of foreign policy approaches to economic policy in Latin America. Yeah, so I think in a way, like uh, the story that you're trying to tell about coffee, uh, which during like these export booms mm -hmm. of the like late nineteenth century, early. 20th century in the story, the history that I'm trying to tell about marijuana in the late uh, Cold War period in the 60s, 70s, 80s, uh, are like two different moments of the same process. Yeah. The process of um, building intimacy yeah. Yeah. between U.S. <laughs> and Latin America, yeah. in a way, yeah. and uh, in Latin America as a subordinate, as a supplier yeah. of that huge, super powerful yeah. uh, society and market that is the yeah. United States, and, and, and letting those power relations very clear yeah. right. and how these commodities like contribute yeah. to like 
clarify and yeah. solidify yeah. that yeah. inequality of power between yeah. the two. And the yeah. one thing, I, the only one thing I would kind of twist on that is that it's not necessarily seen as subordination, that supply is can also be a place of power from yep. which right. that, that yeah, provision yeah, yeah. can also be a place as a, a choice that is made and as seen as um, a strategic yeah. decision. Especially in, for certain actors, yeah. if we're thinking state actors. Or, yeah. Yeah, or a small, you know, mm-hmm. village producers mm-hmm. for whatever reason. Right. It can be that this is this is seen as even if in the long durée it kind of doesn't turn out to be a position from which to negotiate. Mm-hmm. It is initially seen as the position, the, the best strategic decision yep. for entry into that kind of exchange. Oh, and that's the history of American empire on yeah. the global scale, which is to export, you know, cheap agricultural commodities to the world, but to see this within the Americas, this mutual constitution yeah. uh, through the production of agricultural commodities and their consumption in the United States mm-hmm. uh, is very revealing in a lot of ways. And yeah. I mean, as an environmental historian, we can even think of the ecology, the e- ecology that is sort of constructed uh, through those relationships and yeah. how American demand shapes Latin American environments and and vice versa. And so yeah. I think we'll conclude on a more light note on that same subject about yeah. taste, you know, and, and culture, because we're dealing with two uh, commodities that are more considered leisure yeah. commodities yeah. let's say they're not really like they don't have calories <laughs> like not a lot of them in the case of coffee and no. i don't think marijuana yeah. has any calories as <laughs> no. far as i can tell um and you know it, it, to go back to the beginning of our discussion commodities and you know how we perceive their impacts on the body or how we consume them are, are always changing and i think that that both of these commodities have experienced a lot of change in recent yeah. decades in, in terms of how they're perceived and consumed. And I guess, Lena, I guess we should turn to you because we're in this moment where in the U.S., I mean, we're in a state right now in Boston where um, marijuana is being decriminalized and, and legalized mm-hmm. either for medicinal purposes or even for yeah. um, uh, consumption. And I know that um, during one of your forays into the state of Colorado, you did have the chance to sort of participate as a scholar, an ob- observant scholar in in this emerging um, marijuana tourism in the form of actually visiting some mm-hmm. uh, production facilities. Can you yes. tell us about that experience? Yeah, it was it was very uh, entertaining to say the least, um, because um, there's um, this uh, small uh, industry of uh, marijuana tourism in Colorado where they take you on tour. Uh, in limo buses or uh, I suppose small limousines as well uh, to uh, cultivation facilities and dispensaries and all like the the infrastructure uh, for the med and rec uh, marijuana industry, med meaning medicinal and rec meaning recreational. Uh, and, and that's that's very interesting to me to see because one of the things that explain the collapse of the marijuana economy in Colombia for exportation, because there's still a strong marijuana economy in Colombia, but just to supply the internal market, which is still illegal, although now medicinal marijuana is, it has, has been now approved uh, by, by the Colombian Congress. Um, but it's not anymore an expert business. So one of the things that explained the collapse of that export business was the steady growth of uh, marijuana industry here in the United States, especially in the West Coast, and starting like in the early 80s, but especially in the second half of the 80s. Uh, So that industry started to to grow here when 
it was absolutely illegal. So you see how law yeah. and legislation is really slow compared to social yeah. processes and to cultural movements. Right. Uh, so the first like legal move we have here in the United States towards that uh industry is the California um, Act of 1996 when they say, okay, for medicinal purposes, marijuana should be legal. And from that moment on, we have seen a very rapid development of a marijuana industry, initially for medicinal purposes, as is in the case of Colorado, and then for recreational purposes. So visiting one of these uh, cultivation facilities, which was one of the pioneer cultivation facilities, uh, the owner Uh, was explaining how he began with medicinal marijuana and now with the recreational marijuana is just like another huge economic boom. And he was saying this year we're going to see a lot of people going bankrupt because there's like the market is reaching its point of stabilization. Mm -hmm. Right. And the supply keeps growing uh, and it's going to get saturated at some point and a lot of people is going to go bankrupt. Uh, But know those who started in the business early on because they managed to do vertical integration, meaning control the whole process from production to retail sale. Right. Uh, And they are more stable and they will be willing to like... uh, um, receive and buffer right. you know like yeah. the 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 earthquake that's going to happen with the stabilization of the market so it's, it's really interesting to see how a lot of people from california and from all these states that legalize yeah. uh, marijuana in the elections of uh, the presidential elections of november are visiting colorado to study to take notes. So they travel with their notebooks, taking notes or with their recorders, mm-hmm. trying to understand how the business works and and, and what yeah. kind of opportunities they yeah. have. So it's really like a, like a school yeah. uh, for marijuana entrepreneurs yeah. in the country. And a laboratory yeah. as well. And cool. uh, I mean, it, it's only when I saw, that, when I heard the story in the context of your larger research did I understand that this sort of growth of the local marijuana economy in the United States, which has a company changing attitudes towards marijuana, but also mm-hmm. gradual legalization. You know, th- these political economy questions are intimately intertwined, that it's precisely American-grown marijuana that in some way allows yeah. it to be to tra- make that transition from illicit to yes. illicit yeah. commodity. Exactly. And, you know, there's always this debate that, you know, legalization will stop the drug trade and reduce people being imprisoned for pointless, like, non Nonviolent yeah, yeah. uh, crimes, but this economic argument also yeah. is actually there's so a big many part tax dollars there. There's right, exactly. so much money that the government exactly it's, it's about domestic politics as yeah. well because you see you have like a huge marijuana consumption market in the 60s and 70s, but they yeah. were all like uh, dissenters, you know, and mm-hmm. like uh, dropout, right. like college dropouts, or like a. Uh, uh, people not in power. Exa- no, and people who were against yeah. uh, the status quo in this country, right? Yeah. But now the people who are like thinking about marijuana uh, as a as a possibility, as an mm-hmm. as an opportunity, are entrepreneurs. Right. Yeah. So you see, like the the huge difference. So one thing is being pressure to decriminalize marijuana Mm -hmm. by a bunch of hippies that are against the system. And another thing is to be in pressure to legalize or decriminalize marijuana by a bunch of entrepreneurs who just want to like make money. 
Yeah. Yeah. No, it's very interesting. And, you know, it'll be interesting to see how the consumption of marijuana changes yeah. as these new forms are created. Uh, we won't <laughs> speculate on that, but, you know, it could go the way of coffee, which right. has become commonplace. And if I consume the amount of caffeine pills that it would take to like equal yeah. my daily coffee consumption, that would be kind of socially unacceptable. It would be. Uh, yes. but, <laughs> and it, it would be a lot less enjoyable. Right. I imagine, right? right. Like it's it's not a medicine. It's yeah. about the process of consuming. It's about the social side the cultural side of consuming coffee also, which as with marijuana, kind of there is, I grew up in Humboldt County. Like this is, a, you know, I grew up with this idea California. Of, uh, in California, kind of one of the hearts of that early production in the U.S. And that that marijuana is still considered kind of the elite. And if that's what you want, that's kind of, I was offered Humboldt County marijuana while in Costa Rica. Kind of, it was <laughs> trying to be sold to me as kind of the best thing that was out there. And that's what happened with coffee is right. that you have places that have become like, you know, the the fincas in Guatemala that sell bags of coffee for $100 a pound, yeah. right? That you have this differentiation in the market that is happening right now with pot also, that there, you still have the cheap imported stuff from Mexico. Yes, exactly. But you also have this high grade, you can go to a dispensary in Oregon or yep. in Colorado and spend a lot of money on a very small amount, but that has been engineered specifically exactly. to be something, some special experience, which right. is what how coffee, how a kind of elite, yeah. high high quality Gourmet, coffee has. Gourmetization. Yes, yeah. exactly. <laughs> and, exactly. Yeah, and you get to the, the point where like in Ethiopia, for example, they're producing coffee that's so expensive that people in Ethiopia can't right. drink that right. coffee. And I mean, that's most anywhere yeah. that's exporting high quality coffee. Everybody right. in that country is drinking Nescafe. Right. Everybody in that country well, is drinking. You don't get high on your own supply, no, right? I mean, exactly. Isn't that one of the rules of the yeah, game? Yeah. And so it is this kind of this this differentiation into a commodity and into something that resembles more like the spice trade, like yeah. going back to kind of the origin origin points of this this sort of international commerce of really elite goods that are very specialized and it's all about the origin point and it's all about kind of the the quality rather just than just the price. And you'll always have a market for both. I think that's what I like about commodity studies, that you always, because it's a commodity circuit, you yeah. always end up coming full circle. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> no, and, and I think that's exactly what we've done in this conversation today in this extended two-part interview with bonus discussion, really come full <laughs> circle in our discussion of drugs and commodities uh, in Latin America. Uh, with with a view to the global context, and uh, I do hope our listeners have enjoyed uh, and have lots more questions. And and for those who do, I'll remind you that both Casey and Lena have helped me construct a very hefty bibliography that's available on our website, OttomanHistoryPodcast.com, where you'll find where you'll find other episodes related to indeed drugs in the Middle East and various uh, global commodities uh, in their Middle Eastern or Ottoman contexts. Uh, Casey, Lena, thank you both once again for coming on staying with us to the end here thank you chris for having us it was a really fun discussion thank you chris and thank you casey i've learned so much talking about latin america uh, a friend of mine who whose name or gender will not be mentioned here uh told me that uh, they did not like uh when i had interviews about places outside the Ottoman Empire, but I hope that if they are listening, they found this one enjoyable and we'll look forward to our many future forays uh, into global history. Um, I want to also thank our listeners for tuning in, remind you that you can follow us on Facebook to comment on our latest episodes and, and get the immediate updates when they're released. You might also try subscribing on iTunes, uh, where you'll immediately download 
um, all of our latest episodes to your preferred device. Um, that's all for this episode, and join us next time in another episode of Ottoman History Podcast. Mm-hmm.